This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Last Dance, where I tell you stories about crimes that were committed on prom night. In this episode, a teen is accused of committing a terrible crime for the sole reason that he'd been forbidden by his father to attend his high school prom. To investigators, Jeff Pelly was clearly guilty, but there was much more to this story, and it would take years before the case would finally be resolved. Even then, questions would linger. There's a lot to unravel in this story, so this will be one of the rare two-part episodes you occasionally hear on Once Upon a Crime. If you don't want to wait to hear part two, you can join Patreon and get the second part early. I'll give more details on how you can join at the end of the episode. This is part one of the case of Jeff Pelly and the Prom Night Murders. In August 2002, Jeff Pelly was on his way home from a work assignment in Australia when his life changed in an instant. The 31-year-old had a home and family in Florida and worked as a computer network consultant. He was making his way back home on Saturday, August 10th through Los Angeles International Airport with just one leg left of his trip when he was stopped at customs. Jeff's passport had been flagged, and before he had time to understand what was happening, he was put under arrest. The U.S. Customs Database had informed the agent that Jeff Pelly was wanted on a fugitive warrant out of South Bend, Indiana. The warrant had been issued just three days earlier. The warrant wasn't for a recent crime, but one that had occurred 13 years earlier, when Jeff Pelly was just 17 years old. Truth be told, Pelly's life had been filled with tragedies that had turned his life upside down more than once. The worst of them occurred on Sunday, April 30th, 1989. Jeff had spent the previous day getting ready to attend his high school prom. He'd gone to work early that morning as a line cook at McDonald's and then returned home in the afternoon to wash his car before picking up his girlfriend Darla around 5.30 p.m. for a pre-prom dinner with friends. Afterward, they would attend the formal dance that was being held at the South Bend Elks Club. The dance ended at midnight, but the festivities continued. Jeff, Darla, and a group of their classmates met up for an after-prom party at the local bowling alley before finally ending the night about 3 a.m. Jeff didn't return home that night because the next morning, he'd be leaving early with the senior class for a two-hour drive to Six Flags Great America to spend the whole day enjoying the amusement park's rides and attractions. But their Sunday afternoon at the park was cut short when park security officers approached Jeff and took him into the security office. There he was told by a city detective that his father, stepmother, and two younger stepsisters were dead. They had been found shot to death in the Pelly's home in Lakeville, Indiana. Officers then drove Jeff to a police department in South Bend, where he was taken into a room to speak with detectives. By 4.30 p.m., Jeff Pelly understood that he was suspected of the quadruple murder. Robert Jeffrey Pelly was born December 10, 1971,
to Bob and Joy Pelly. Robert Pelly, called Bob, had met Ava Joy Armstrong in Ohio, and they'd married in 1970. A year later, Jeff was born, and three years after that, their daughter Jacqueline, called Jackie, was born. Bob worked in the newly burgeoning field of computer networking. In 1980, Bob, Joy, and their two children moved from Ohio to Florida, settling in Cape Coral. Bob, at first, worked as a tech with United Telephone. Sometime around 1982, he landed a job at Landmark Bank's data processing department, where he was employed as a computer networking expert. Bob Pelly had grown up attending church and was a member of the Church of the Nazarene, an evangelical Christian denomination that was formed in the United States in the early 1900s. The roots of the Nazarene Church sprung out of a merger of several holiness movement churches, including Pentecostal and Methodist. Bob and Joy had met when they were both students at Mount Vernon Nazarene University in Ohio. Their church was an important part of their lives, and they and their children were members of a Nazarene church in Cape Coral. Bob was especially active in church leadership. In 1983, the family suffered a huge blow when Joy was diagnosed with breast cancer. Jeff had just turned 13 and Jackie 10 when Joy died in February of 1985. She was just 34 years old. Jeff and Jackie were devastated, but Bob remained stoic. Although he must have also been reeling after losing his wife so quickly and far too soon, Bob nevertheless decided it was best to move forward as quickly as possible. Six months later, while visiting family in Ohio, 34-year-old Bob Pelly met 26-year-old Don Huber. Don had also married young and had three daughters. Jessica was six at that time, Janelle five, and Jolene just three. Don had been widowed when her husband Ed died by what was said by some to be an accident, but others would later report that he'd taken his own life. Within three months, Bob married Don and brought his new wife and her three children to Florida, blending the two families together. Jackie and Jeff were still grieving the death of their mother, but now they had a new stepmother and stepsisters and were expected to welcome them into their home. Both children struggled with the quick marriage and acceptance of a new mother figure in the home, but Jeff especially. He had a hard time accepting Dawn as an authority figure as she was just 13 years older than himself. He couldn't bring himself to call her mom and instead referred to her as Dawn. He also resented his father for, in his opinion, forgetting his mother so quickly and replacing her with another woman. Life plodded along with the newly formed Pelly family, not exactly blending, but at least tolerating one another. Then another change and another blow to Jeff and Jackie Pelly's world occurred. The exact circumstances that led to this are still somewhat of a mystery. Jackie Pelly, only 12 at the time, recalls that one night in the fall of 1986, her father received a call to come to the Landmark Bank headquarters in Fort Myers. She says she remembered some whisperings about money that went missing from the bank or possibly money laundering that had occurred. How and why her father was summoned regarding this issue, if it did happen, is not clear. What is clear is that by the following night, the Pelly family packed up their belongings and moved out of Florida. Now, this is weird. Even if moving had nothing to do with Bob Pelly's job, it would still be odd because Jackie doesn't remember any talk of relocating before that day. It was all very sudden and very mysterious. Not only did her father leave his home of six years and the job that paid him a decent salary, but he moved his family to a city and state where they had no ties. 
Bob, Joy, and their five children moved to Lakeville, Indiana. There, Bob took a position as a church minister for a small salary of $1,200 per month, plus the use of a home or parsonage located next door to the church. Olive Branch Church served the small congregation in the rural town of Lakeville, located a few miles from South Bend. Lakeville's population was less than 1,000 people. Not only did Bob Pelly move his family to an unfamiliar town and leave the industry he had studied and trained to be employed in, but he also became the pastor of a church of a different denomination than he'd been raised in and attended all his life. Now they were no longer Nazarenes, but were members of the United Brethren Church. The Pelly children's lives had been upended once again, and it was particularly hard on Jeff. Now 15 and in high school, it was a difficult transition to move away from his home and friends to make new ones in a small town. Families who break up due to divorce and end up in a remarriage, even years later, will often find themselves dealing with family challenges. Introducing a new spouse and stepchildren into a family can be a difficult adjustment and one that requires patience and understanding. The Pelly family was formed after the death of two spouses, a great loss to everyone and particularly hard on the children. Added to this was the blending of two sets of children at very different stages of life, Don's very young daughters and Bob's preteen daughter and teenage son. All of these dynamics compounded the Pelly's parenting challenges. Bob and Don Pelly tried to set up a strict set of rules for all the children to follow, but Jeff and Jackie didn't think them fair. They were older, and as a teenager, Jeff wanted more freedom. But the more he rebelled against his father, the more Bob attempted to put Jeff under his thumb. This led to heated confrontations between father and son. Jeff's rebellion resulted in him committing a series of petty crimes in Lakeville. At age 16, he was caught shoplifting. In another incident, he was accused of breaking into cars at a nearby mall. Bob also discovered that Jeff was smoking marijuana. Don was overseeing the church women's fund, and Jeff once stole a check from the account and forged it in an attempt to withdraw cash. Jackie also argued with her stepmother's rules, but Jeff's actions pegged him as the family's problem child. At one point, Jeff admitted to feeling suicidal. Bob decided that Jeff and the entire family could use some help, so the Pellies began attending family counseling. In the early spring of 1989, Mark Center, an Indiana State Police investigator, saw a report about a residential burglary on Osborne Road in Lakeville, the same street where Olive Branch Church was located. Center knew Bob Pelly as the pastor of the church, so when the officer discovered that Bob's son Jeff was a suspect in the burglary, he reached out to him. Bob brought his son to the police station to meet with the officer. Right away, Jeff confessed to having broken into the home. He'd stolen about $100 in cash and coins and about 40 compact discs. Bob was worried that if Jeff were arrested, the black mark on his record would affect his future. Bob had also kept Jeff from facing criminal charges for the earlier forged check. He was a big proponent of public confession and making amends. As a consequence for attempting to steal from the women's fund, Don made Jeff stand before the women's ministry and apologize. Now Bob was able to get Center to agree not to press charges against his son as long as Jeff apologized and repaid the person whose property had been stolen. Bob also told the detective that Jeff was on virtual lockdown at home. He promised Center that he and Don would keep a close eye on the boy. Bob took Jeff's car away as part of his grounding. 
but to make doubly sure Jeff didn't sneak off in it, he removed two fuses from the engine and also removed and hid the car's distributor cap. Jeff wasn't happy about this, but seemed to accept the punishment at first. Then a week or so later, realizing that not being allowed to drive his car would put a damper on his prom night plans, Jeff tried talking his father into letting him have use of the car again, but Bob stood firm. Jeff's grounding began in early April, and prom was scheduled for Saturday, April 29th. As teenagers do, Jeff continued to plead his case to his father over the days and weeks leading up to the prom. Bob had, in the past, renegotiated punishments with Jeff and sometimes shaved off a few days, changed the term slightly, or even ended the punishment altogether if Jeff showed good faith through better behavior. Jeff believed that his father would eventually concede because Bob knew how important the prom was to him. Bob did make a concession of sorts. Jeff would be allowed to attend the prom under the condition that his father would drive Jeff and his date Darla to the dance. He would be picked up at the end of the dance, and the other activities would be forfeited. Well, as any red-blooded teen knows, having your old man drive you and your date is the height of embarrassment. Father and son continued to butt heads in the days leading up to the dance. This is where accounts differ and would convolute this case. Some of Bob's parishioners would later say that Bob told them Jeff was punished and would, under no circumstances, be able to drive his silver Ford Mustang to the prom. According to them, Bob said he'd made sure Jeff couldn't drive it by disabling it, canceling Jeff's car insurance, and even hiding the keys. Allegedly, Bob made these claims even up until the day before the prom. Jeff would say that initially, his father had forbid him from attending prom, then changed his mind, and said he could go, but had to be driven by him. Finally, the evening before the prom, Jeff said Bob agreed to allow him the use of the car, though whether it was just for prom night or for the entire weekend is unclear. Jeff had been working as an early morning crew member at McDonald's, starting work at 5 a.m. That Saturday morning, on the day of the prom, Jeff had been scheduled to work. A co-worker picked Jeff up at 4.30 a.m., since his car was not back in working order yet. This, of course, is according to Jeff. Jeff completed his shift that afternoon around 1. His father picked him up to drive him home, and on the way, Jeff said they talked. Jeff was happy he would be able to attend the prom and the rest of the activities, promising his father that he was working hard and trying to make better choices. Jeff and his father had previously disagreed over his relationship with Darla. Bob had thought a girlfriend was too much of a distraction for the already unfocused teen. Like most teens in a new relationship, Jeff was desperate to spend time with his new girlfriend, and he'd had several arguments with his father over this topic. Now, Jeff said, he was encouraged that his father was allowing him the freedom to attend this important high school event with Darla. Maybe Jeff even used the argument that if he was forbidden to attend, he'd be letting Darla down after promising to escort her to the prom. This may have swayed his father to open the door for negotiations, which may ultimately have led to Jeff's restrictions being lifted. So now we're up to the all-important timeline of the day of the crime that would take place in Lakeville, Indiana, on April 29, 1989. This timeline would end up being a key aspect of the crime's investigation. That's next, right after a short break. On Saturday, April 29, 1989, Jeff Pelly woke up early, dressed in his McDonald's uniform, and was picked up by his shift supervisor and driven to work. 
Bob left his home late in the morning to drive his son home after his shift ended, but left a little earlier than he needed to as he decided to make a stop. A local gun shop owner would later tell investigators that Bob Pelly had stopped into his store that morning to look at some handguns. Bob had owned several guns in the past, but after discovering his son was feeling suicidal, he'd gotten rid of or sold several, including a 12-gauge shotgun, a 16-gauge shotgun, a 22 caliber rifle, and two 22 caliber pistols. The last gun he'd still owned up to a couple of weeks earlier was a 20-gauge shotgun. So why was Bob shopping for another gun that Saturday if he decided it was unsafe to have weapons in the house? Many said Bob had a lifelong love of guns and liked to collect them, so that could be a reason. While Bob spent some time looking at several guns in the store that morning, he left without purchasing any. Or perhaps we can believe what Jeff said, that his father was happy with his progress and began to trust him again. Maybe Bob believed they were over the worst of Jeff's rocky teen years, or was at least hopeful they were, and he started thinking it would be okay to purchase a new gun. Or maybe it was something more sinister. Was Bob worried about something or someone? If so, had he been threatened by someone or simply had a feeling of imminent danger? In any case, Bob left the gun shop without making a purchase. He picked up Jeff and they returned home. Jeff arrived home a little before noon and changed out of his uniform. Then he washed his car a silver Mustang. This was witnessed by several people that afternoon. Some even remembered his two little stepsisters, Janelle 8 and Jolene 6, helping him. His stepmother Dawn was away from home that afternoon attending a Girl Scout meeting. Dawn was an active volunteer in the organization. Jeff's oldest stepsister Jessica, age 9, was staying with a friend and her family in a nearby town that weekend. Jeff's own sister Jackie, 14, was also away attending a church event at Huntington University. Bob, Jeff, Jolene, and Janelle had lunch together. Afterward, Bob left to visit some of his church members. Meanwhile, Jeff prepared his clothes for the prom and placed them in the trunk of his car. He later reported that that afternoon, he and his father had replaced the fuses and the distributor cap back in the Mustang. Jeff watched a baseball game until about 4 p.m. when his father returned home. Don returned about 10 minutes after Bob. At around 4.30, a group of kids who attended high school with Jeff and were also attending the prom stopped by the parsonage, including a girl named Kim and her date. Kim and Jeff had once dated, and Kim was friends with the Pellies, as Bob Pelly was also her family's pastor. She stopped by to show Bob and Don her dress. Another friend of Jeff's, Matt Miller, also stopped by. Matt realized he'd forgotten his date's corsage, so only stayed a few minutes and then drove home to retrieve it. Meanwhile, the rest of the group left after a few minutes, departing about 4.45 p.m. According to Jeff, he left the house just minutes after Kim and the others, which he guessed was about 4.50 p.m. He drove to La Paz, another small town a few miles south of Lakeville, to pick up Darla at her friend Lynette's house. Lynette's mother was helping Dawn with her hair. According to witnesses, Jeff arrived at 5.30 p.m. and changed into his tuxedo. They had made note of the time, because they had dinner reservations they didn't want to be late for. Lynette's date was already there, and when the girls were ready, the couples took some pictures and then left for the Emporium restaurant located in downtown South Bend. Jeff and Darla attended the dance and the after-prom party at the bowling alley. Some of the teens, including Jeff, 
slept for a few hours at a friend's home at the invitation of their parents before rising early Sunday morning to make the two-hour drive to the Six Flags Amusement Park. On Sunday morning, Bob Pelly was scheduled to give the sermon at Olive Branch Church. The service began each Sunday at 9.30 a.m., but Bob was usually there an hour early to prepare to receive the congregation. This Sunday morning, however, the first members arrived and the church was still empty. They waited for a few minutes, but by 9.15, when Reverend Pelly still hadn't shown up, they walked across the gravel road next door to the parsonage where the pastor lived with his family. They knocked on the door, but nobody answered. They found this odd, since both Bob and Don's cars were in the driveway. They tried the side door to the garage and found it locked. It was never locked on Sundays. Congregants were usually welcome to come into the Pelly's home, where they sometimes had a cup of coffee or breakfast with the family if they arrived early enough. They walked around the home and found all the curtains and drapes in the windows shut and all the doors locked. All of this was unusual, as they couldn't remember ever seeing the curtains closed during the day. Usually by now, the little girls were playing in front of the house, Don was cleaning up breakfast dishes, and Bob was already at the church greeting the members. Now the house was shut up tight as a drum, and there was no movement or sound at all from inside the house. The group quickly enlisted a young pastor in training to take over greeting the arriving members and prepare for the service. Meanwhile, two members of the church board decided to try and get into the house to find out if the Pellies were ill, the only reason they could think of that they weren't coming to the door. They found a key to the parsonage's front door, and one of the members, David Hathaway, let himself in and called out to the family. There was no answer. He began to walk toward the back of the house, where the kitchen was located, but passing the hallway, he looked to his left and saw the body of Bob Pelly lying face up on the floor. There was blood on his chest, and some of it had splattered the bottom of the hallway's wall. He was clearly dead. Hathaway went back outside and warned the others not to enter or touch anything. One of the women ran to the church and announced what they'd found, while another made a call to 911 from the Pelly's kitchen phone. Paramedics arrived and checked Bob Pelly for signs of life. There were none. They checked the rest of the rooms on the ground floor of the house, but found them empty. They then moved down the stairs from the kitchen to check the basement. Paramedics flipped on the lights in the basement, and a bloodbath greeted them. There seemed to be blood everywhere in the small basement room, the floors, walls, and even some on the ceiling. Don Pelly's body was lying on the basement floor in a pool of blood. Her two daughters, eight-year-old Janelle and six-year-old Jolene, lay by her side, also dead. All three were covered in blood. The youngest child was clutching her mother's side. It was as if all three were forced to lie on the ground before they were shot, Dawn holding her daughters close to her side, crying desperately to shield them with her own body. Bob Pelly had been killed by two shotgun blasts one to the chest, believed to be the first shot that knocked him down, and a second that hit him in the neck and jaw. He was casually dressed and wearing sneakers on his feet. His eyeglasses lay behind him and was the first item that caught Dave Hathaway's attention before he looked down the hall to observe Bob's body. There was a pen, a notebook, and some papers lying next to him. 
Investigators believe that one of the shots in the basement had most likely been fired from the stairway and had landed across the room, piercing a book. Dawn and the children were also dressed casually. Dawn in blue jeans and a sweater, and the girls in shorts and t-shirts. Dawn, it appeared, had been shot first. The two little girls may have been pulled close to her side by their mother, or directed to lie there by the shooter, before all three were shot in the head at fairly close range. The weapon used was most likely a shotgun. The scene was brutal and gory, and those who investigated the case would be haunted by the memories of what they saw in the Pelly's basement. They each vowed to themselves to find the person who could commit such a horror and make them pay for this terrible crime. In less than 24 hours, small-town gossip and speculation would lead investigators to zero in on one suspect, 17-year-old Jeff Pelly. Detectives discovered that there were three other Pelly family members who weren't home at the time of the murders. They'd already located Jeff at the amusement park about two hours' drive from Lakeville. Jackie and Jessica were called home and arrived within hours of their parents and the girls being found dead. Jackie's maternal grandparents, Jack and Mary Armstrong, arrived from Kentucky. The Armstrongs took Jackie and checked into a hotel in South Bend. Don's parents, Ed and Laura Haynes, traveled to Lakeville from Michigan to take custody of Jessica. The investigation team consisted of St. Joseph County Detective Sergeant John Bowditch, Indiana State Police Investigator Mark Center, Criminalist Lieutenant Jerry Rutowski, Sergeant John Pavlekovich, and Deputy District Attorney Jack Kreiser. Center, one of the first on the scene, shared with the other investigators his recent interaction with Bob Pelly regarding the residential burglary his son Jeff had committed in March. He told them that at that time, Bob told him he planned to take Jeff's car away from him for the rest of the spring and summer. The team noticed that Jeff's car was missing from the house. Reverend Pelly's congregation were alerted about the Pelly murders by the female board member who'd helped Dave Hathaway enter the house. Stunned by the news, many stood outside the parsonage and so were immediately available to be questioned about their pastor and his family. Church members said that Bob Pelly and his wife were lovely and kind people, but also detailed the problems Bob had with his teenage son, Jeff, including the forged check from one of their ministries. Several members also told police that Bob had been telling them all week that Jeff was forbidden to attend the prom and that his son had been angry about this. If this was true, officers thought, where was Jeff? By the time Jeff was retrieved from the amusement park, investigators had a working theory of the murders. Investigators believed that Jeff Pelly was angry with his father for forbidding him to drive his car or attend his prom. On that Saturday, Jeff decided his father wasn't going to stop him. After his friends left the parsonage a little before 5 p.m., Jeff confronted his father in the house and shot him twice. He then went downstairs and shot Don and the girls. He'd removed his bloody clothes, put them in the washing machine, where a small load of laundry was found already having gone through the wash cycle, took a shower, changed his clothes, picked up all the shell casings as none were found left at the crime scene, drew all the curtains, and locked the doors. He then left in his car, taking with him the shell casings and murder weapon, which was not found after a thorough search of the house. He discarded this evidence somewhere else. They believe Jeff Pelly then picked up his girlfriend and attended the prom as if nothing had happened.
There were, however, some significant problems with this theory. All four victims had been killed with a shotgun. Investigators believe that only one weapon was used and fired by one person, namely Jeff Pelly. However, crime scene technicians discovered that two types of shotgun shells were used in the commission of the murders. The shotgun waddings found during the autopsies were of two different types, cardboard and plastic. It was possible that two types of shells were used in one weapon, but it was also possible that two weapons were used, and two weapons would indicate more than one shooter. Either six or seven shots were fired in the Pelly home, including the one slug that had ended up in a book in the basement. The seventh possible shot was evidenced by a gash in the drywall at the stairwell, although this could have possibly been a ricochet of one of the other six shots. In his detailed book, The Prom Night Murders, author Carlton Smith explains that most pump-action shotguns hold either four or five shots. If there were six or seven shots fired in the Pelly home, the weapon would have had either to be reloaded or there were two shooters. The two different types of shells might also add credence to the two-shooter theory. By far, the biggest problem with the investigators' theory that Jeff Pelly had killed his family was the timeline. We know that the Pelly family was alive and well up until at least 4.45 on Saturday, April 29th, when Kim and the other teens left the parsonage. Jeff's first interview occurred around 4 a.m. after being returned to Lakeville. In a videotaped interview accompanied by his grandparents, Jack and Mary Armstrong, Jeff would tell investigators he'd left his house at just 5 or 10 minutes after Kim and the others, around 4.50 p.m. Several witnesses could attest to the fact that Jeff arrived at Lynette's house to pick up Darla by 5.30 p.m. The drive from the parsonage to Lynette's house was clocked at a minimum of 20 minutes. It was also determined that Jeff had stopped at a Namoko gas station on the way to Lynette's, as witnessed by the gas station cashier. Jeff said his car had been idling rough, and he'd stopped to make an adjustment. The cashier confirmed that Jeff had arrived at 5.20 p.m. He remembered because he'd been waiting for an employee who was late to take over the shift. Jeff said he made the adjustment on his car and then left, arriving at Lynette's at 5.30. But while Jeff claimed he'd left before 5 p.m., his friend Matt Miller, the one with the forgotten corsage, reported seeing Jeff's car at the parsonage at 5.10 p.m. when he'd passed by a second time. Aha, investigators pointed out, Jeff was lying about the time he left. He had still been at the parsonage at 5.15, and to them, that meant he had about 30 minutes alone with his family to kill them, clean up, and leave at 5.15, arriving at the gas station five minutes later, and at Lynette's by 5.30. Let's break the timeline down, though, shall we? Jeff Pelly would have had 30 minutes max, or a bit less, to confront his father one more time about the prom, retrieve the weapon, shoot his father, reload the gun, go downstairs and corral three people, including a mother desperate to save her daughters, and shoot all three, remove his bloody clothes, put them in the washing machine and turn it on, find all the shotgun shell casings, take a shower, get dressed, close and lock all the doors, draw the blinds and windows, find the fuses and distributor cap to his car his father had removed and hidden, put them back into the car to get it running, and finally, find time to get rid of the murder weapon and all the shell casings. Even with an entire 30 minutes, it would have been quite a feat to get all this done in that narrow window of time. And there was yet another problem with the timeline. A neighbor who lived down the road from the Pellies, named Lois Stanbury, 
told investigators that she saw Bob Pelly standing outside in front of the parsonage at 5 p.m. He was in the church parking lot talking to a man, Stanbury reported. She remembered a black truck parked in front of the parsonage. She didn't recognize the second man. Stanbury was able to back up the time she reported seeing Bob because she was in possession of a time-stamped receipt. She had been shopping at Target and was able to calculate the time she'd passed the parsonage with the aid of the receipt. If this sighting is true, that would shrink the timeline considerably, making it almost impossible for Jeff to be the killer. It also gives investigators another possible suspect. Who was the man seen talking to Bob? Could he have been responsible for the murders? Could he have something to do with why Bob Pelly left Florida so suddenly, a little more than two years earlier, and changed his life so drastically? It's interesting to note that when she learned her father, Don, and the girls had been murdered, Jackie's first thought, which she shared with the police, was that someone from Florida had come for her dad. She believed the person responsible had to be someone connected with whatever had gone on at the bank. Jessica, Don's oldest daughter who lost her entire family that terrible April day, would later say that for a very long time, she believed that her stepfather had committed a murder-suicide, killing her mother and sisters before turning the gun on himself. Investigators had quickly ruled out this possibility based on the evidence, but Jessica, only nine at the time, held on to this belief for years and never considered that her stepbrother was to blame until he was charged with the murders 13 years later. The state's evidence that Jeff Pelly killed his family was based on circumstantial evidence, a very short window of opportunity in which to carry out the crime, and a somewhat thin reason for Pelly to commit a quadruple murder, namely in order to attend prom. Other evidence investigators pointed to as a sign of Pelly's guilt were the reports of church members that Bob told them up until that Friday that Jeff was not allowed to drive his car. However, Jackie, Jeff's sister, said that her father had changed his mind on Friday and agreed to let Jeff attend, but was only giving him a one-weekend reprieve. Jackie said that the deal was Bob would tack on the rest of Jeff's time on punishment at the end of the sentence, which was supposed to last through the summer. The other clue that points to Bob having changed his mind and allowed Jeff the use of the car is that several people saw Jeff washing his car in the afternoon before the prom. Why would he wash a car that he was not going to be allowed to drive for several more months? Investigators also highlighted Jeff's response, or lack of it, when he was told his family had been murdered. Detective John Bowditch said that Jeff didn't show any emotional reaction to the news. He didn't cry, and his effect was, quote, flat, Bowditch said. We often hear people point to a lack of emotional response to terrible news as a sign of guilt, but it's mostly unfair to judge people's emotional reactions or lack thereof in these types of situations. A person may be stunned or in shock for minutes, hours, or even days after hearing such traumatic news. We also have to remember that Jeff Pelly, in his 17 years, had already undergone several traumatic losses in his life. His mother's death when he was just 13, his father's remarriage so quickly, Jeff said his father's, quote, personality changed a lot, unquote, after he married Don and their relationship grew more distant, and the upheaval of leaving his family in Florida so suddenly. It would be very understandable for Jeff to have learned to numb his emotions as a coping mechanism when faced with another loss. And there is something else. 
Jackie Pelly reported that when her mother was dying of cancer, her father sat her and Jeff down and told them that no matter what happened, whether their mom lived or died, they were not to be crying about it. He told them they had to go on with their lives and he didn't want to see them moping. He then told Jeff to go do his homework, made Jackie attend church that night, although she didn't want to go. Later that day, she was told her mom had died. He wouldn't allow us to cry, Jackie said. Jeff Pelly learned that even when you were grieving, you were to hold your emotions inside and carry on. It was the lesson learned from his father that made Jeff Pelly appear guilty in the eyes of his accusers. We'd have to believe that a 17-year-old acting out of rage for not being allowed to drive his car to the prom committed a quadruple murder within a 20-minute time frame, left no physical evidence behind, and hid the murder weapon in shell casings so well they've never been found. The only time Jeff was alone and could have ditched a weapon unwitnessed by anyone was from the time he left the house until the time he arrived at Lynette's in La Paz. After that, it was determined that he was with someone the entire time from 5.30 p.m., until he was picked up at the amusement park on Sunday afternoon. A thorough search was conducted of the areas between the parsonage and La Paz, where Jeff could have disposed of the weapon in that short amount of time, but nothing was turned up. An implausible timeline, lack of a murder weapon, no physical evidence that Jeff was involved in the murders, and the unlikelihood that a juvenile could pull off such a crime caused the St. Joseph County District Attorney to decline to charge Pelly with the murders. Jeff Pelly was questioned but as advised by his grandfather, declined to take a polygraph test and stopped talking to investigators as soon as it was clear he was being considered a suspect in the murders. He was free to go, but investigators continued to believe he was guilty of the heinous crime. Jeff and Jackie lived in Lakeville until the end of the school year, but resided with different families. Dawn's surviving child, Jessica, moved to Michigan to live with her grandparents. In the fall, Jackie left Lakeville to live with an aunt in Colorado, while Jeff enrolled in Manchester College, where Darla was accepted. The next year, he and Darla broke up, and Jeff dropped out of college to return to his hometown of Fort Myers, Florida. He reconnected with old family friends and began taking courses in computer database programming and networking systems. By 2002, Jeff Pelly was married, a father, and making a good living as an IBM Microsoft Network consultant. But investigators back in Indiana had never stopped keeping an eye on Jeff, still convinced he was a murderer. In 1998, a new district attorney was voted into office in St. Joseph County. One of Christopher Toth's first act as a new DA was to appoint a new head investigator of the county's special crimes unit, Mike Swanson. Swanson had been one of the technicians who'd worked the Pelly crime scene in 1989. He reopened the investigation on April 29, 2000, 11 years to the day of the prom night murders. Some of the clothing still in evidence from the crime scene was sent to the FBI for DNA testing. The shotgun wadding was also looked at again to try and determine the exact make of the shotgun that was still missing. Witnesses who could still be found after over a decade were re-interviewed. No new evidence was uncovered. Even so, in 2002, Toth's cold case team once again collected all the old evidence and brought it to the prosecutor, Ellen Corsella. 
She decided that it was enough to prosecute Jeff Pelley for the murders of his father, stepmother, and stepsisters. On August 10th, he was arrested on a fugitive warrant at Los Angeles International Airport and transported to Indiana, where he was charged with four counts of murder and booked into jail. Two days later at a press conference, the prosecutor admitted that there was no physical evidence that Jeff was involved in the murders, but said she believed the circumstantial evidence would show that only Jeff could have been the killer. The frequent mantra of the prosecutor over the next several years as Jeff's case wound through the courts was, if not Jeff, then who else could have killed the Pellies? They believed the lack of any other suspects would convince a jury that Jeff had to be guilty. But Jackie Pelly was also re-interviewed by the cold case team and once again shared her belief that something her father either had knowledge of or been involved with while working for Landmark Bank in Florida could have gotten him killed. Her theory was neither followed up on or considered. But another viable theory emerged. A longtime friend of Bob Pelly's, with whom the family was close during their time in Florida, got mixed up in some shady financial transactions that would lead to a murder in 1989. A warrant was issued to search the home and office of Bob Pelly's old friend in the investigation of that crime. Coincidentally, the investigation was reaching its peak at the same time that Bob Pelly was found murdered in Indiana. Coincidence or a clue to the truth of the Pelly murders? That and the outcome of the charges against Jeff Pelly will be covered in part two of the Prom Night Murders next week. That will do it for part one of the Pelly Murders. If you don't want to wait a whole week for part two, you can get it early and ad-free by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash crime to join for as little as $2 per month. As a new patron, you'll get a package of Once Upon a Crime goodies mailed to you. You'll also get bonus episodes, sneak peeks of upcoming series, and more. Once Upon a Crime is also on YouTube. If you prefer to listen to episodes there, you'll find them under Once Upon a Crime podcast. I also share bonus videos there as well. There's a link to our channel in the show notes. You can find resources used for every episode in our show notes as well. Simply look for them on whatever podcast app you're using or on our website at truecrimepodcast.com. Finally, a new episode of my other podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime, will be out this week. On that episode, I share a fascinating discussion with one of my favorite people and podcasters, Jerry Williams from FBI Retired Case File Review. You can find a link to that episode also in the show notes or on our website. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our research administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.